You're listening to a podcast from Bayside Church International. Well, are you ready? Why don't I... uh, Should you say now? We really should have practiced. Don't know where it's going to fit in. Um, We are in the midst of... We are in week six of a seven-part preaching series called Adventures in Glory and Grace. We're looking at the book of Exodus. Has anyone enjoyed this so far? Uh, slightly, a little bit. Yeah, come on. Those of you who've been away, iTunes, all right, they're, they're all on there to a greater or lesser extent. But Adventures in Glorious Grace, we're looking at the wonderful adventure of God's people called out of Egypt or exiting the Exodus, okay, hence the book of Exodus, Exodus from Egypt uh, as they journey toward the promised land. The story doesn't particularly end well, but that's okay because we can learn lessons from both good examples in life and poor examples in life and take this to heart that God is calling us all on an adventure in his glory and grace. We started uh, on Mother's Day when we did a, a talk called Saved by the Bell. How many of you like that? I love that one. Saved by the bell. We then looked at Moses and Aaron the next week with Moses, a man with a mission from God. Show me your ways was the next week as we studied something of the ways of God that Moses learnt in his journey with God. He said, Lord, show me your ways. Not only the will of God, because that was very clear to them, but to embrace or to walk into the will of God, often it takes us knowing the ways of God that we may cooperate with him. And this was one of the prayers of Moses, show me your ways. The next week, Rob Moores was in the house. Don't lose your nerve. Chains were breaking, oceans were parting, and uh, that was a great Sunday. The following week, glorious encounters as Jay looked at the burning bush experience and spoke about something of what it means to encounter the God of glory. Last week, we looked at some leadership lessons. Now, come on, that's the response you gave me last week. I, I'm hoping, come on, surely a week later, having, having done all that work last week, last week we looked at leadership lessons. Oh, that was so exciting. Okay. So we looked at some leadership lessons in the life of Moses. And today, one of my very favorite subjects ever. Good point. To know who you are and to know whose you are is one of the greatest lessons you can learn. To know who you are and to know whose you are. Jesus said in Matthew 16, when Peter had a revelation of who Christ was, who do people say that I am? This, that, and the other. Peter said, you are Christ. And Jesus said, you're spot on, mate. And that's been revealed to you from heaven. And he said, now that you know who I am, I want you to know who you are. Now you've seen me as the Christ, I want you to know that you are a rock. Okay? And on this revelation, knowing who I am, And knowing who you are, I will build my church. I will build a community of people that will advance against the gates of hell based on the foundational knowledge of knowing who I am and therefore knowing who they are. This is where our seven pillars of our church come from. 
These aren't just words that all started with the letter G, that somehow, well, Chad obviously had his hand in it, there's no doubt about that, but it wasn't just fancy words we picked. No, each one of these values we stand for, pillars that we stand for as a local church, begin and are rooted and founded in the foundation of who Christ is. Yes, we are a body of believers because Christ is our head and our source. We are a family because he is our father. Everything we value, everything we go about doing is based on our rock-solid revelation of who he is. And out of knowing who he is, we know who we are. And the great I am says something about who you are. And that's what we're going to look at today. First, ladies and gentlemen, Jay. Hello, hello. Um... I just felt before Rob gets up, just to remind us that we are standing on holy ground. You know, when Moses came to that burning bush, God spoke out of the bush and he said, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. And we're not standing on holy ground because we're in a church this morning. We're standing on holy ground because on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. We stand on holy ground right now as we leave this building into tomorrow, into Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because in Christ the solid rock I stand. And I just felt before Rob gets up just to remind us of that so that we can position our hearts and hear this from the holy God. Hear the message that is on his heart. It's for us. And it's really for us. So this morning, guys, girls, Bayside, visitors, you are standing on holy ground. Would you like to welcome Rob Moores up? Uh, uh, uh. I tell you, if we're in a different generation, we probably start singing that song, we're standing on the holy ground, but I won't inflict that on you. I'm not going to do that. But, but I want to tell you something I spotted here this morning. <coughs> I was worshipping there, and I had the Holy Spirit sort of messing around with a bit. And, and, and Zoe was there, and she looked at her mum, took a dummy out of her mouth, ran over to mum, handed mum a dummy, and went back and sat down here. And I thought, and then, and then she's laughing at me as, as the Holy Spirit's sort of messing with me. She's laughing her head off at me. And I thought, what are you showing me here, Lord? So we sometimes call a dummy a comforter. It's something that comforts a baby. You give a baby a dummy when they're upset or they're crying or, or, or they, they feel a bit scared. And she basically handed that over to her mum. And God is saying today... We hand over those things that we produce to comfort us and look to him. Yeah, that's, the, that's one of the things that has been happening to me lately. I look at something and then God says, this is what this says. Something every day. And we can all learn to do this. We can all learn to do this more and more. We spent a whole day doing this here not long ago and that just opened me up. There you go. <coughs> Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. And it says something like that. God looked over all that he'd made and saw that it was 
very good. Yeah, he saw that it was very, how good? Very good. <coughs> and sometimes we get down on ourselves. This is before I start, by the way, Chad. This is my before I start. We get down on ourselves. And, and we, we put it, we're not, sometimes we're just not happy with ourselves. We all do this. And today there, there's some here that you're down on yourself for some reason or other. This is what God says about his creation, which includes you. It's very good. Now, are you going to argue with him on that one? No, no, no. Because he created you and he declares his creation is very good. Now, I'll get into the message. I'm happy about that now. <coughs> Romans 5, chapter, chapter 15, verse 4. And this is about the scripture. We tend to sort of start here. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And so we're looking at the book of Exodus and we're being taught by the book of Exodus. And there is so much in that book that we can learn. <laughs> as I mentioned a little while ago, that the book of Exodus is a record of the redemption of an entire nation based on a promise made to Abraham. That's an amazing thing. When I spoke a couple of weeks ago, we looked at that whole thing of God setting an enslaved people free, taking them from slavery through the Red Sea to freedom. So this week, I'm looking really at this whole issue of identity. The problem is, these people never really grabbed hold of who they really were as the people of God. They, they never really got it into their hearts. So I'm going to look at that. So we've got this bunch of people who really need to get their hearts right. They never did. The challenge is for us that we have our hearts right before the Lord and we truly know who we are. And I just trust today that some of us will have a bit of a shift in our hearts and get that right before the Lord and for the rest of our lives. Now, <coughs> when I first went to theological college, we lived for a year in, in, the, in the parks area. <coughs> we lived at, in, near Mansfield Park. That was across the road. We lived in Woodville Gardens. There's Ferriton Park and Angle Park. And it was a really amazing area. It was called the ghetto. The advertiser labelled that it was the most economically and depressed area in Australia and the most violent. It was like, that's where we lived. That's where we'd do a ministry. And there was, there was so much unemployment. There was so much misery and <laughs> violence, drugs. We watched drug busts across the street happening when the drug squad came in and cars being firebombed. It was this sort of place. It was full of despair and hopelessness. The church was there and something was happening. In the middle of this place was the Parts Community Centre, which was something pretty amazing that the government had built. And they had a high school there with incredible teachers. And our daughter, who was 13, <laughs> went to high school. She did a first year at high school. People said, you can't send a little girl to that school. Well, she went there and flourished. And she had this friend, I'll call her Jodie, 
It was this tough little nut who took a shine to Gail and if anyone looked like giving Gail a hard time, they'd have to deal with her. And I mean, she, she was tough. She, she had her own minder. Anyway, this particular day, we went down to, down to Mount Compass and Jodie came with us and, uh, and we were at this nursery. A friend of ours had a nursery. She had never been out of the city in her life. In fact, she'd never even been to the city of any of the city centre. Lots of youngsters around there had never been there. They, they lived this weird sheltered life in, in this violent, drug-addicted sort of area and, and all this, but and never went anywhere. And Trevor said, oh, what do, you, what do you think you'll do when you leave school? And she told him. And he said, oh, he said, anything else? No, no, no. She says, my mum says, <coughs> that's a good job. That's what mum does, so, so that's what I'll do. For this kid who was actually, she was smart and she was bright, it never occurred to her that the world was bigger than this area called the parks. This was her world and this is where she was probably going to probably spend the rest of her life in her mind then. The whole thing, her whole identity was just wound up in being this kid with a single mother, probably never get, have good, much money and that'll be my life. That was her identity. And so we have the people of Israel who are taken out of terrible, brutal, horrible slavery <coughs> into freedom through the power of God, through the Red Sea. And they, they go through there and as I mentioned, it's night and there's a pillar of fire in front of them and 90 to 100 metres of water each side and they get through the, the other side and this is what they do. They celebrate. You'd be celebrating. It's daylight now <coughs> and this is what happens. And so Exodus 15 verses 1 to 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. And I will not attempt to sing an old song again here. <laughs> he has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God and I'll praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is warrior. Yahweh is his name. And so they sang this and they just glorified God. And then they go wandering around the desert through the wilderness for a couple of months. And this is what happens. <laughs> they go from this incredible victory and attitude to this. Exodus 32, listen to this. Someone knows what's coming. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down from the mountain, he was up there spending time with God. Funny how when people spend time with God, people get restless. What's God telling them? <laughs> what's going on? They gathered around Aaron and said, Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. I'm thinking, this is like crazy. There, so Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and sons and daughters and bring them back. And you think, what is the matter with Aaron here? It must be a whole message just in what's up with him. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took the gold, melted it down, moulded the shape of a calf. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Go figure. 
What happened to that pillar of fire that was there last night? <coughs> Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf. Then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Now, I actually don't want to do a study into pagan revelry, but no, no, no. It's full on. It's full on. It's X-rated. It's R-rated plus. In fact, R-rated people probably would get embarrassed with this stuff. It would be that bad. And so they're having this massive pagan party after they'd done peace offerings and stuff like that. So they'd gone from, <coughs> I will sing to the Lord for his tribe gloriously, to... Where's this fellow Moses? Come on, give us some real gods here. You've got to think, what is going on with these people? <clears throat> they're two to three months out of Egypt. That's all. And they're complaining and they're grizzling. And they complain and they complain. <clears throat> Even before they left, Exodus chapter 5 verse 21, they are complaining. Exodus chapter 14, 11 and 12, they're at the Red Sea and they're complaining. You took us out of there. We could have died back there. What do you want to do? <clears throat> it's much better back there. It was awful there. <clears throat> when God starts changing something in your life, remember that other stuff often was really horrible. Sometimes it was really bad. And for them, it was. And so they complain. You get to Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. They're complaining again. And then you get to 17, 1 and 2 and 3. They're complaining again. They love complaining. Who likes complaining here? Come on, put up your hands. <coughs> Look, we all are a bit... We can do that fairly well. It's funny how, you know, you get people together and they eventually get down to complaining. Don't complain. It's not worth it. It just makes things bad. It does. <coughs> and we know what God's attitude is towards other gods. No false gods. <coughs> it's not to be entered into. No false gods. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 23 says this, and this is what God had to say, Remember, you must not make any idols of silver, gold, or ivory. <coughs> that is really clear. That is really clear. No gods. Exodus chapter, De Deuteronomy chapter 13, there's a whole chapter devoted. No idols. <coughs> no gods. And so it's clear. No false gods. And they make calves <coughs> to worship because this is what led them out of Egypt. Uh, you've got to think, were they thinking? What, what was going on in their heads? So they have a calf. And you think, so what is the problem here? And this is what I think. They're bad boys? Yeah. They're human, but we all do it and we need to stop doing it. Exactly. We need to stop doing it. We will not continue this discussion now. <laughs> they didn't know who they were. They were so enslaved in Egypt <coughs> that even here in freedom, part of them still is enslaved. And so their identity is distorted. Their identity was warped. They had distorted identities. God had said incredible things about them. He'd taken this people out there. He's leading them through the wilderness. 
And he declares just how amazing they are of what he thinks of them. And so if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 8, and by the way, I quoted, read this the other week and said that was also the number plate of my car. It's not anymore because I changed the car, but that's uh, just sort of tell you that. And so this is what this says here. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. This is what God says about you. <coughs> this is what God says about you. And you might think that's okay for the person sat next to you. That includes you. That you are chosen and that you, you are his special treasure. And then it goes on to say, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you <coughs> because you were more numerous than other nations for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply because the Lord loves you. Now, I like that. You don't have to do anything <coughs> or prove anything. He just loves you and you're chosen and you're his special treasure. You know, you could probably say, well, you little treasure. But I don't think it was really that tone. It was like, you are so precious to me. You are of incredible value to me. God gave them <coughs> the tabernacle as a place to worship and a way of worshipping in the tabernacle. He gave them his law and this was a way of them knowing how to live in a way that would be right before God. The tabernacle <coughs> and the law in a way are like, I guess you'd say that they're they're, they're a picture of what these people were becoming. It showed, showed them what they were becoming. The only thing is they never really grabbed hold of it. They showed them that they were a chosen people, a holy people, a people who belong to God, a people who are worshipping God. Those, the tabernacle of the Lord show that. And for us, the, cry, the cross of Christ and the resurrection... The love of God poured out in the cross <coughs> shows us who we are, sons and daughters of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 tell us that God thought about us before creation and loved us then and planned our future. And in this we would be a holy people and he would adopt us into his family. That is who we are. And so we belong to God. <coughs> These people were absolutely loved by God. The thing is, they just didn't get it. They just didn't get this into their hearts. And I suspect in some ways they resisted the whole package. It's like they had this identity that God wanted them to have, but they distorted the identity by just continuously going back to the gods and the idols of Egypt. And so I guess they just saw themselves as these, these people who were oppressed. They saw themselves basically as still slaves. They were so enslaved that they were just still slaves in their hearts and in their minds. Somewhere they had opportunity to make a choice as to who they were going to follow, who they were going to trust, and who they were going to be. <coughs> Somewhere they had that choice. They had that choice for the rest of their lives. The thing is, 
They made a choice for God. They made a choice for the gods of Egypt. They had a bit of both. Do we do that? A bit of both? So they made those sorts of choices. <clears throat> they made the choices to still stick with the gods they had in Egypt and they made the choice for God and it almost seemed like when it sued them. And then going into freedom, that would have been an, a frightening experience. Going through the Red Sea, you had 100 metres of water each side, it was night time, <coughs> the Egyptians were behind you, there's this massive pillar of fire leading you, that would have been absolutely frightening. Some of them would have wanted to give up. Some of them would have wanted to go, <coughs> go back. And so, in all of this, when God takes you to freedom, it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be easy or going to be comfortable, but it's worth pushing through because it's God who's leading you. <laughs> and so for us, when God sets us free from something, <laughs> when he says, I'm freeing you, I'm liberating you, and I'm giving you life and a future, we still have to make the choice to either grab hold of that or to stay where we are. And sometimes to go to freedom, it is a frightening thing. Sometimes where you've been is enticing. Sometimes it's quite exciting. <coughs> Egypt looked like an exciting place, except you brutalised it, all of this. So, and sometimes what was is familiar. Well, I don't know what this future will be like. I think it'll be all right, but at least I know what it's like here in the parks area, so to speak. I know what it's like there and I know how to handle that. And I don't know what it means if I somehow did well at school and went to university. That's too scary. I can't. Do you see what I'm saying? <coughs> you see what I'm saying here? There are choices that need to be made. And so when God is taking you out of something that has messed with your life and taking you to freedom, we need to take, make that choice and say, I'm going to go for this. I'm not going to lose my nerve. Don't lose your nerve when God is setting you free. I'm not actually slipping back into yes last week. <laughs> it's all connected. It's all connected. God meant us to be his people. Chosen, loved, set free. <laughs> he meant them to be loved, chosen and set free. And he, their God. But instead, deep within... <coughs> in part, they were still slaves, they were still brutalised, <coughs> they were still oppressed, they were stu still abused. Inside, they were demeaned, put down, they felt useless and they felt worthless. That's <coughs> what came out of Egypt with Moses. And so, every time they would be afraid or unhappy, they would look to Egypt I'd be looking at that pillar of fire. <coughs> it got me through the Red Sea and, it didn't, and I didn't get burnt. <coughs> but they looked back to Egypt, to the gods and idols of Egypt. And as they travelled through the wilderness, they picked up everyone else's gods and idols on the way and took them into the promised land and picked up theirs. They were really good at this sort of stuff. And so for Israel... <coughs> Whenever they were in trouble, whenever they were afraid, their coping mechanisms were their gods and idols from Egypt. That's where they'd go. That's where they'd be comfortable. For Zoe, 
the dummy's a comforting thing. We won't say that's an idol, <laughs> but <coughs> you know what I mean? It's a coping mechanism. She handed it to mum. She didn't need it. We need to be like that. We need to be like that to hand those coping mechanisms to our God and to be able to live without them and trust him on it. Okay. Yeah. The funny thing is <coughs> about all of these pagan religions, they all promote immoral behaviour, they promote gluttony, drunkenness, they, and violent behaviour. They promote all sorts of stuff that should never happen. They promote all this stuff. <coughs> and funny thing is, people like to grab hold of it. Anything that's excessive, these religions promoted the whole lot. Well, they got into the promised land. And then they settle down there, and guess what? They've still got their idols with them. Read the book of Judges. Judges 18 verse 14. There's a whole thing there of household idols. They had their household idols, and they had them all the time. Even they'd get a priest to come in and live in their house, and they'd use that. You think, this is like warped. These people had distorted identities. And then even in the day of David... Saul is after him and his wife was a Mecca or what that was his name. She got him out the back and put an idol in his bed. You're thinking, do you have spare idols hanging around in your house in those places? <coughs> they probably did. Household idol and put that in the bed so people would think that was David in there who was really sick. And then I think the classic is Solomon. I I reckon Solomon is like the most incredible role model for part of his life. Solomon, Solomon, <coughs> he had this amazing intellect, an incredible intellect. <coughs> His IQ must have been sky high. The stuff that he was doing and the, 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 the songs and the books and the things he would write, the stuff he knew about, and in wisdom, it's supernatural wisdom. And he'd met with God <coughs> at least twice in visions and God turned up when they dedicated the temple and filled the temple with the power and the presence of God and smoke and stuff. And the presence of God was that thick that they couldn't continue their work. Someone said that's because they couldn't see. I would say they were so overwhelmed by the power of the Holy Spirit they just couldn't move. They were just, they were just done for. <coughs> and so his experience of God was amazing. He built this kingdom up from the foundation David had laid and it was awesome. And he was stupid. How can a person with supernatural wisdom be stupid? Well, you can. <coughs> it's a choice. It's a choice because he, he had a weakness. He liked women. Now, there's nothing wrong with liking women, but 700 wives, that's a bit excessive. Seven, did he know their names? <coughs> 300 concubines. Not quite sure what the difference is in those days, but <coughs> that's what it says. And a big chunk of them, if not all of them, are, from, are pagans. And God had said, don't go marrying these pagan women. They'll lure you away into their religion. Don't hand your daughters over to these pagan guys because, again, they'll take on their gods. And so what does Solomon do? Exactly the same thing. And so when he's old, these thousand women, you've got to think there's something wrong with this guy. <coughs> What's wrong with this guy? So this is 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 4. In Solomon's old age, 
Oh, this was started before his old age. They, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of, instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch. I want to tell you, that Moloch was a nasty piece of work. He was a nasty piece of work. They would sacrifice their children to this god. That's how attractive this was. There must have been something about this that people were prepared to sacrifice their children to. to and, and Solomon basically embraced all this stuff. You've got to say, he left a great legacy. I don't think so. Read the rest of the books of Kings and you'll discover something there. And so all of this stuff just never went away. Now, I don't know for sure when the Exodus was. There seems to be various opinions by various scholars from about 250 years to 400 years <coughs> to Solomon's time. So let's just fast forward again another few centuries to the days of Ezekiel. So I love Ezekiel. You know why? Because he's weird. You know, um, a prophet once told me I was weird. He just picked me out and said, you're weird. And I thought, I thought, hallelujah. <laughs> said, you're, you say, said, you're weird, eh? No, it was in the picture theatre. Is that Greg Burson? But I have to say it was spot on. <laughs> but there was more to it than me just being weird. Anyway, Ezekiel is an absolutely amazing person. The thing is, by the time you get to the book of Ezekiel, they actually know when things actually happen. When you get back in the book of Judges and, and the earlier books of Kings and things like that, they don't really quite know when things happen. After it, there seems to be a way they can actually nail down the dates of when things happen. So what I'm about to read here actually happened in 591 BC on August the 14th. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? They don't actually have 591 BC, August the 14th in the Bible, but they do have a date that actually became correlated, which actually will come out to 591 BC, August the 14th. He'd been there maybe a couple of years, uh, taken in captivity from Israel. I'll tell you about Ezekiel. <coughs> I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just lay a bit of context here. I'll just lay a bit of context. Who, who, who likes context? There's two, some hands go up and others are just laughing at me. <laughs> I'll lay a little bit of context here. In 605 BC, so that's around three or four hundred years after Solomon, the Babylonians came down and invaded Judah. And they basically beat them all up, took a whole people, a heap of people captive and took a lot of their wealth <coughs> and stuff and off they went. You need to know these things. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego would have been taken to Babylon in that, in that, in that, in that evasion. So they went then. And then about 596, 97 BC, around then, um, they came back again. And Ezekiel was a young priest and he was taken off into captivity. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came and just wrecked the temple, tore it to bits, just levelled it, tore the, the walls down of Jerusalem and took anyone and anyone who was anyone off into captivity. So they were raided three times and people were taken there. So when this is written, when this story is happening, 
Jerusalem is still in one piece and they're still resisting the Babylonians. But they've only got six years to go before Nebuchadnezzar comes and wrecks the place. <coughs> and so you've got young Ezekiel. He turned 30 at the beginning of this book a couple of years ago. And he, he, he's, he gets words from God. And this is what God said to Ezekiel to tell him, said to Ezekiel. So this is Ezekiel chapter 7, chapter 20 rather, verse 7. Then I said to them, each of you, this is the people of Israel, get rid of the vile images you're so obsessed with. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. We're talking about something that maybe happened 800 years before, maybe. Could be, could be that long. But they rebelled against me and would not listen. They did not get rid of the vile images they were obsessed with or forsake the idols of Egypt. <coughs> so hundreds of years later, they still had the idols of Egypt <coughs> there in, in the land, in their homes. And what's more, they were in the temple. So at this particular time, all sorts of pagan idols and images have been set up in the temple and around the temple. And, and we sort of think, how could they do this? Well, they did. So you go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Now this, is a, has anyone ever read this story before? Is anyone familiar with it? I don't see any hands. You've see, got one here. <laughs> We've got one here. Chad's read it. Okay, so this might be new stuff for some of you. Then on September the 17th, 592 BC, <coughs> during the sixth year of Jehoiachin's captivity, you, you need to read the, read the last few chapters of Kings and, and Chronicles, and it tells you all about all this stuff. While the leaders of Judah were in my home, the sovereign Lord took hold of me. I saw a figure, what appeared to be a man. <coughs> From what appeared to be his waist down, he looked like a burning flame. From the waist up, he looked like a gleaming amber. He reached out <coughs> what seemed to be a hand and took me by the hair, which we really need to get a, like, some graphics of that one, chat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's awesome. Then the Spirit lifted me up into the sky, transported me to Jerusalem in a vision from God. I was taken to the north gate of the inner courtyard of the temple where there is a large idol that has made the Lord very jealous. So stuff set up there. Suddenly the glory of the God of Israel was there just as it had. I had seen it before in the valley. That happened when he was called to be a prophet at the beginning of the book. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, look towards the north. I looked, and there in the north, beside the entrance to the gate near the altar, stood the idol that made the Lord so jealous. Son of man, he said, do you see what they're doing? Do you see the detestable sins of the people of Israel who are committing to drive me from my temple? But come, and you will see even more detestable sins than these. He brought me to the door of the temple courtyard where I could see a hole in the wall. He said to me, now, son of man, dig into the wall so I dug into the wall and found a hidden doorway does everyone know the story it's pretty pretty fascinating isn't it <laughs> go in he said and see the wicked and detestable things that they are committing in there so I went in and saw the walls engraved of all sorts of crawling animals and detestable creatures this is this is all Egyptian stuff I also saw the various idols worshipped by the people of Israel 70 leaders for Israel were standing there <coughs> and so Six years before Jerusalem is finally just wrecked to bits and they are under pressure and under threat from the Babylonians, 
they're there in a room underneath the temple worshipping Egyptian gods. What on earth are they thinking? And so these people had a distorted identity. They never really understood who they were. They'd taken their idols and their gods from Egypt and taken them with them and passed them on through the generations and they're still there. So every time, every time they're afraid, when they're under pressure, when they're under stress, when they can't cope, when they're unhappy, when they're miserable, they run to their coping mechanisms. And what are their coping mechanisms? They're the gods of Egypt. Instead of going to the living God, <coughs> they're their coping mechanisms, the gods of Egypt. And they're worshipping there underneath the temple, let alone there's all these pagan idols set up <coughs> around the temple. And you've got to think, what on earth are they thinking? Their idols, in effect, are indicators of their unbelief. And folks, there are times that we, in a sense, have idols in our life. You've got to ask yourself this question. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And within us, deep within us, do we have any idols buried in there? Things that we would prefer to run to than running to God. And so when you're under stress, where, where do you go? Do you turn to something else or do you turn to God? Is what you turn to an indicator of unbelief or an indicator of belief? And so their coping mechanisms were the idols from Egypt, the idols from their days of slavery. <coughs> when they were as slaves, they're the gods and idols they went to to help them get over the day and to feel better about themselves. And so here, years later, they still saw themselves as being oppressed, they saw themselves as being put down and abused. That's how they saw themselves. God had made specific demands of them. I just want to say this. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, and this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, and it's, and it's verse 2. So this is what God said to them here. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling, yourself, humbling you and testing you to prove your character and find out or not whether you obey his commands. The thing is, they never measured up. Even centuries later, they never measured up. They never fully understood who they were. And you can belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. We can belong to Jesus. <coughs> Yet what happens when we're under pressure? What happens <coughs> when we're being squeezed, when we're under stress? What are your coping mechanisms? What is it you run to? And I know when you talk like this, people say, I'll oh, have a glass of wine or chocolate or, <coughs> or, or I'll go shopping. Makes me feel better. A few grins there. Make me feel better. <coughs> or I'll work harder. When I was in college, we were doing the psychology subject and the lecturer who was a psychologist <coughs> asked the question, 
What do you do? How do you manage when you have a really bad day? And one woman says, oh, I'll go home and have a glass of wine. And she immediately just flicked back and she said, that's an anaesthetic. Because when the anaesthetic wears off, the problem is still there. <laughs> so what do you do? You have another glass of wine. <coughs> and when that doesn't work, you have another glass of wine. You keep on doing the same thing, that doesn't work. And what's more, it makes you feel bad about yourself. It makes you feel worse and it <coughs> doesn't fix it. And people say, oh, I eat chocolate. So what happens after that bit of chocolate's gone? I'd have another bit. And you just keep going. And you keep on saying, oh, I shouldn't be eating this chocolate, oh, but it makes me feel better. Um, but after it, it doesn't work. And you feel worse. Coping mechanisms don't make you feel better for very long. After a while, you feel worse and you end up doing more of the same instead of turning to God. <coughs> when we went to our first church, which was at Lucendale, we got into, into that area about the time when the interest rates went sky high. This is late 80s, early 90s. <coughs> and the wool prices just fell. People were really struggling. People were going broke. They couldn't pay their mortgages. People were, were like in a, in a terrible state. And this particular family had moved down to, to our area and bought a farm. It was terrific farming land, especially for sheep and cattle. And so they'd bought a really good farm, <coughs> also had a massive loan, and all of a sudden they've got 20% interest rates. How do you pay 20% interest rates on a farm? And, and so they were in trouble. And what he would do, he would be up and out the door long before daybreak, somewhere out in the paddocks all day, working hard, working hard all day, and then coming in late at night. <laughs> and the next day, the same thing. So his coping mechanism was working. They were Christian people. was working. Work, work, work. He nearly worked himself to death. And did it change anything? <clears throat> it didn't change interest rates. It didn't change the wall prices. And eventually things sorted out. And they sort of recovered. But he nearly worked himself to death. And so what I'm saying here is, that when you are under pressure, when stuff's happening, when you're afraid, you need to run to the right place. So often we run to the wrong place <coughs> and it doesn't work. And when it doesn't work, you feel worse and you look for something else that might work instead of running to God. Now, I'm going to tell you a story <coughs> that I, I heard at a, a training, a disciple training seminar I went to a few years back. This seminar was run by a Christian psychologist who's absolutely brilliant. And he tells a story about this woman came to see him. And she said her husband was a pastor, and he was a pastor of a, a, a decent-sized church with about 800 people in it. church was, 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 was a great church. It had been going well. But in the last few months there'd been some trouble, some trouble with a couple of the leaders of the board and they were giving her husband, the pastor, a really hard time. And it was really getting to him and he started working harder and he started spending a lot more time at the church and he often wasn't getting home until well in the evening unless there were meetings on. And so this went on for quite a while. Then one day she decided, I think I'll, I'll just do something nice for him. So she prepared a meal for him, a prepared tea for him, <coughs> something he really liked, packed it all up, took it into the church and just walked into his office. Of course, she'd walk in his office. She's his wife and she's also co-pastor, so she's not going to knock at the door. And she goes in there and around his office was 
everything that had a flat top, the desk, the table, the, the cabinets, the chairs, were covered in pornography. And the computer screens were, cut, were on, and they were covered in pornography. And so, like, she was, like, really angry. Now, that is understandable. She was angry. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. <coughs> she felt betrayed. And so she went to meet to see this psychologist. She said, look, I need help here. You know, what can I do? And she explained what was going on. He said, well, you need to bring your husband in. So he came in. He was, he was like really embarrassed and he was totally ashamed and you just <coughs> had a broken man. And so he talked with them. Now, what is going on here? Why are you like this? You know, it doesn't seem to be part of who you are. So he took him back <coughs> to when he was young. When he was five years old, his parents would started having difficulty. They would start arguing, <coughs> and they would do this a lot. They would argue loudly, and they'd argue in front of him. They'd be shouting at each other. They'd probably throwing their occasional punch and throwing stuff around the, around the room. And so it really was a frightening thing for a five-year-old. So one night, <coughs> he ran into his parents' bedroom and hid under the bed. And under the bed was a box filled with Playboy magazines. They call that soft pornography. I don't think there's anything soft about that sort of stuff because he got addicted to it at five years old. I've heard of grown men, Christian men, pastors, who looked at pornography at eight years old and got addicted in one go. This is how that can grab you. This is another story. <coughs> and so... Every time his parents argued and fought and he was frightened, he would run into their bedroom and hide under the bed and open up the magazines and look at the magazines and look at the women there. And this would happen time and time. He'd be frightened, he'd run into their bedroom, under the bed and open the magazine. So years later, as a grown man, pastor for 20 years, something's happening in the church and he's under pressure, and he's frightened, he's fearful, where does he go to his coping mechanisms? Pornography. I want to say this story had a good ending. It had a really good ending. But your coping mechanisms will take you somewhere that isn't God, and they won't work, and they'll make you feel worse about you, and somewhere they'll let you down. The only thing that will help us is God. <coughs> so, who are you? Perhaps with keys, Amy, wherever you are. She's still here. Yep. So, who are you? Do you know who you are? What happens when you're under pressure? What happens when you're squeezed? What comes out? What comes out? When we're under pressure... This reveals where we are. It reveals what we think about ourselves. What happens to your character when your character is squeezed, when your character is under pressure? What comes out? Does it look like Jesus or does it look like something else? It look, maybe it might look like a gold calf <coughs> that just jumped out of the fire, or so to speak. Or does it look like Jesus? If you're identity is wrapped up in, in what you do whether as a pastor and I want to say plenty of us are like this that that's where our identity is or can be unfortunately in mine I've worked that one out 
is where is your identity? Is it, is it wrapped up in what you do, in your career, your job, your position in life, your status, your possessions, what you've got, or the things that you do in the community, or your family, your kids? What happens when that is put under pressure? What comes out? And you might say, yep, I really love God and I'm serving God. But when that is squeezed, when that's put under pressure, what comes out? Does it look like Jesus or does it look like something else? Folks, our identity in Jesus Christ is that we are sons and daughters of God, shaped in his image. This is who we are, loved, forgiven and set free. All of us, if we belong to Christ, this is what he wants of us. <laughs> On the cross, Jesus, the perfect one, gave his life for us. He died terribly. And on the cross, he broke the power of sin. Death no longer has the final say. Satan loses his authority. And we get set free of our sin, our past, <coughs> and all that stuff from before that messes us up. And he was raised to life, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In heaven, he is in a glorified state. And this is a model of what we are to become. And the mission of the Holy Spirit is to make us to be more like Jesus and to remind us of what Jesus has said and to clothe us in power. Our identity is that of sons and daughters of God. A God who before time thought about us and dreamt about us and planned our life and future planned that we would be holy and we would be his, in his family, adopted into his family as his sons and daughters with life and hope and future. And so if we are under pressure, what are our coping mechanisms? More of the same old stuff that doesn't work and makes us feel worse after a bit? Or do we go straight to Jesus? Or do we have a bit of both? And how long will that work for? The bottom line is that we are sons and daughters of God. Loved, forgiven and set free. We have purpose and we have hope. We have future and we have power. Today, it's simply this. Grab hold of your identity. Step into your identity and walk tall, knowing no matter what the past was, you can walk tall with your back straight and your eyes fixed forward because you have Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to just pray for a moment and then I want to show you a short video and then we'll have the band up and we'll have some... But the band could come up now, that would be great. You can close your eyes if you want to, or you can keep them open. I don't really mind at this point. Most of us, most of us have stuff that we know that we need to get rid of. Stuff that really doesn't help us. 
stuff that doesn't really help us. For some, we're fearful of things. For some of us, we don't handle pressure well and the stuff that comes out isn't all that fantastic. And there comes a time, and for some of us it might be today, where we need to exchange what we can't change. So look to Jesus. You can lift your hands to heaven. You can put your hand on your heart, wherever your spirit might be. But look to him. And ask him these things. Tell him these things. Ask him these things. And it'll go something like this. And you can pray this quietly yourself. You don't need to pray it along with it. You can pray it quietly in yourself. Lord Jesus, today I bring my failures. I bring my fears. I bring my pain. I bring my unhappiness. I bring stuff to you, Lord, that I know has distorted my identity. Today, Lord Jesus, I hand this over to you. Lord Jesus, what do you give me in exchange? What do you give me in exchange? And in that, for some of you, God will have actually shown you things. I'd like to share that with me maybe sometime if you want to or Chad or someone today Lord I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for the life that he's given me for forgiving me and setting me free I'm so grateful that you call me your son I'm so grateful that you've given me the Holy Spirit Lord Jesus Holy Spirit come and cement my identity in you today Father God I ask for more of your spirit that your spirit would fill me and overwhelm me in such a way that I grow weak at the knees in all this Lord show me what I'm becoming before you we have the video, please. This has been a podcast from Bayside Church International. Thanks for listening.